The preaching is found as noted in verses 54 through 62, which records for us the denial of Peter's threefold denial. And yet we wish to look particularly upon its effect as recorded there in verse 61 and 62. And so while he yet spake, verse 60, the cock crew, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter, and Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Such a passage as this is well known to us because whatever many will say against Peter, the truth is they say it against themselves. We see ourselves so much in Peter. Peter who is often in the fore, zealously contending for Christ, and yet here as we have it, uh, exposed to his own weakness and thus exposed to his own sinfulness. And though we may never, by God's grace, be in such circumstances as publicly to deny the Lord Jesus Christ, yet each of us know what it is as believers to sin against Christ consciously and deliberately as did Peter. And though we do not have the same local look of Christ to us, we all know the very intent of the look of Christ to Peter when it says that he turned and looked upon Peter, which look reminds us, convinces us, convicts us, but also directs us unto the way of repentance. And likewise, does every believer to one degree or another know what it is when confronted by Christ with our sins to go out and to weep, whether bitterly to the same degree or not, yet the essence is often known by us. Notice the text as Peter follows closely after Christ and he's brought in to the high priest's house. That is, not like we would have a house, but uh, this estate of sorts. And as he follows at a distance, Christ goes in. And here Luke's order differs from a few others. You can look at Matthew, for instance, in chapter 26. And you'll see that there's cause to understand that Christ is already experiencing much of the brutality while Peter is going through this very moment. And what we have before us is a highlight of something that Luke is directing us to consider. Remember, Peter is the one who says, though all men forsake you, yet surely not I. And he's the one, as it were, who uh, brings out the sword and cuts at the servant's ear. And it's now Peter who follows a bit at a distance. And you notice in verse 54 that it says, that it is Peter followed afar, verse 55, and he sits down among them. Now, this among them includes much of the company that had just been in the garden. And you can see that in Matthew and John as there are records of those who were present. And you can even get a sense of it when it says in verse 56, this man also was with him, but more so when it says, thou art also of them, and so on. And then finally, of a truth, verse 59, this fellow also was with him. There's an identifying of Peter having been with Christ, and one such is a relative of the servant whose ear was cut off. And so though Luke highlights certain other details, sometimes more broadly, 
painting the portrait. Other times, more specifically, what we see is Peter sitting in the midst of those who are no friends to Christ, and yet out of some curiosity, as Matthew records, he went to see the end. He went to see the fruit of this. What's going to happen? And so there's an interest that Peter has. But you'll notice the emphasis in this chapter is upon the threefold denial. Verse 57, after having been asked, Peter notes, Woman, I know him not. And you'll notice who it is that says this, this man was with him. Verse 56, a certain maid, not a royal queen, not some of the court who was high and lifted up, but a servant girl comes and says this man was with him. And Peter, who hours before had said, though all men will deny you, I will not, now denies him in the presence of but a maid. And it happens again as the text records. Peter denies him again in verse 58, saying, man, I am not. That is, I am not of them. So notice the language, I know him not. I am not of them. And finally, in verse 59, you have again, of a truth this fellow also was with him. And verse 60, man, I know not what thou sayest. Of course, parallel to this is the record that with curses, he denied him with an oath, saying in essence, if it is true what you say, then may God condemn me. May his vengeance be upon me. I don't know. I don't have fellowship with I am not associated with this Jesus of Galilee. This is a severe denouncing of any affiliation with Christ. Not only am I not His disciple, I don't know Him. I'm not among them. I'm not aligned with them. I'm no friend, not only to Him, but unto His people. And as it happens, it says that the Lord then turned And it says, looked upon Peter. And that little circumstance recorded right as the Lord turned in verse 60 was that while he spake, the cock crew, that is for the third time. So the cock crows, as Christ had said, you'll deny me. When the cock crows three times, you'll have denied me thrice. Christ then turns. We don't know all the arrangement of the court so on. It could be that at this time he was being passed from one room unto another and he looks at Peter at this very moment. And think for a moment all that's going on at that time. Christ is being exposed. He's being beaten. All of this is coming to him. The cross now looms large. And just in a few short hours, all of these things will be heavily upon him in their fullness. And yet he, with a sincere, intimate concern for Peter, while he's about to bear the cost of Peter's redemption, looks at Peter. And Peter, though perhaps unable to put it all into words, remembers the word of the Lord, and he goes out and he weeps bitterly. What's interesting, of course, is there are two, in some sense, deniers of Christ. Judas, who betrays the Son of Man with a kiss, and Peter, who denies Christ three times. And though Judas, not recorded by Luke, but other Gospel accounts, will go out with great concern and hang himself, killing himself, Peter goes out and weeps bitterly, and yet, as we see, retains an attachment to Christ as he numbers himself with the disciples. Just in the next chapter, you'll see that. 
He's with the disciples awaiting what's going to come after now He's been crucified and He is restored as well later. But what we wish to focus on at present is that these bitterly shed tears are expressive of deep Christian experience. And it's important to see this. Deep Christian experience. Peter isn't one who becomes a Christian later. Peter is a Christian now. He's already been said, he's already testified, thou art the Son of God. And Christ has said, blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood hath not revealed this to you, but my Father which is in heaven. And so he's a regenerate person. He is one who is, by the coming sacrifice, already accounted forgiven and justified as it were, accepted with God, renewed, awaiting, yes, a more full pouring out of the Spirit as will come at Pentecost, but nonetheless a member of the invisible church, a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet, you'll notice that in this one passage, the worst of offenses, and brethren, we can say it this way, the worst of offenses in all of the Scriptures are recorded in this passage. It is a believer who himself three times denies to know, to be associated with, or in any way to be affiliated with Jesus Christ. And yet Christ knows what's going on. Even while He's making payment and shall make payment for Peter, He looks back upon him. What we see here is the expression of Christian experience when we have dishonored Christ. Now praise the Lord, if it is that we have not so dishonored Christ as in the same degree as here Peter has. And yet, brethren, it takes no large effort to see that any such sin is fundamentally of the same character. For when we sin, deliberately, consciously, what are we doing? But we are saying in so many actions, in so many words, I'm not affiliated with Christ. Because if we were acknowledging to be affiliated with Him, we would walk in the way of holiness. We would carry ourselves in the way of His instruction. And when it is that the Lord brings to us the powerful look of grace that so melts us and gives us shame and repentance, we know what it is to humble ourselves. And so we wish to look three aspects at three aspects of these tears. Firstly, looking at them as they are tears of shame. Secondly, tears of remembrance. And thirdly, as they are tears of love. Firstly then, the aspect of these tears is weeping bitterly as they are tears of shame. Our culture has done much to make shame equal to a forbidden word. Shame is something that is thought to be as unacceptable in society. If you type in shame in any search engine, you'll have all these sorts of expressions as how to overcome shame, how to ignore shame, how to outdo shame, all of these things. And yet, what's interesting is if you change up the search engine and say shame is good, you'll actually see increased studies that are saying, humanly speaking, there is a need for shame when appropriate. The point is, when we think about shame itself, it is a difficult and complicated affection. Everyone knows what it is to be improperly shamed. And so, a child who's struggling with math through no lack of diligence, and yet the teacher comes and openly embarrasses the child, and so on. 
is an improper application of shame. And there are many other such things that would fall into that simple category. The problem is, because the improper application of shame is known by most, if not all, it becomes equivalent to all shame being considered improper. But brethren, as the Bible is the rule of our faith and obedience, we have to balance out our thoughts by its measure. And the Scriptures affirm, yes, there is an inappropriate shame. And so it is that we're to train up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, not provoking them to wrath. There's something there implicit about inappropriately shaming them that would spur them onward and so on. And yet we see in the Scripture that there is a shame that is appropriate. Here's the thing. Here's why it's so difficult for us. The inappropriate shame cast upon someone who doesn't deserve it feels the same as appropriate shame we should bear. Because fundamentally what shame is is humiliation. It's the frustrating of what we expected and desired and it's coming back on us as not what it should be. It's the humiliation. And when it's appropriate, that humiliation is always related to our having sinned against God. Where there is sin against God, there is an appropriate sense of shame. We can see this in the Scriptures. We don't need to labor this too much. We've mentioned this recently with the censure. You can see it just for refreshing our thoughts. 2 Thessalonians and chapter 3. This is God's Word which testifies that one purpose of carrying out the strictness of the censure against those who have so sinned is that, verse 14 of 2 Thessalonians 3, note that man have no company with him that he may be ashamed. Now here's one way that we can helpfully navigate through the cultural abuse of the word shame. Understand by ashamed means humiliation. They are to be brought low. And when this happens, now you'll start to see through the false worldly attack against biblical shame. Because the false worldly attack always has the message of be true to yourself. Don't worry about detractors. Don't worry about what people say. And all of us in this room see so clearly through the most egregious offenses. Oh, you want to do that sin? Don't worry about what your parents say. Don't worry about what church leaders say. Don't worry about that shame they're inflicting upon you. But really, that counsel is counsel from Satan. Satan is puffing up one to be broad-chested and strong-headed in their pursuit of sin. Whereas the Bible would say they're actually to be brought low. That's what shame is. Pride is that which puffs one up and brings them to go forth headstrong into their sin. But humiliation or biblical shame brings one low. That's the fundamental point of this shame. Shame, in other words, is appropriate because of sinning against God. You can see this in another parallel, 2 Corinthians chapter 7, and there at verse 10. Godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation not to be repented of. But the sorrow of the world worketh death. You see, it's not sorrow that's the problem. 
It's the difference between godly sorrow and all of its related affections and carnal, worldly sorrow. And so whereas we acknowledge that there is a shame that works death, a sorrow that works death, there is a sorrow, a shame, a humiliation that works unto life. Think of this for a moment. We know this, naturally speaking. We don't even have to think about religion in one direct sense. When someone's sorrowful, they're small. They're quiet. They're burdened. There's a reason for that. That's the way the Lord has made us. That when we're saddened, we become melancholic. We become withdrawn in many ways. Now, there can be great errors in the way that's expressed. But a simple observation makes that plain. When it is rightly that we're sorrowful, when it is rightly that we are humiliated before the Lord, we're going to be brought low. Now, brethren, remember, this is a Christian. This is a regenerate member of the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he properly goes out and weeps bitterly. What is that telling us? Well, it's telling us that shame expressed over our sins is a right expression. It is right and good and needful for us to go out and express our sorrows unto the Lord. It's interesting, Peter doesn't go out and then you know, post throughout all of his outlets, you know, look at me and now what I'm doing. There's something instinctive, natural by God's grace, that when we are convinced of our sins, we withdraw to weep and pour out our hearts unto the Lord. Read through the Psalms, and you'll see this again and again and again. The soul that is convinced of its sin finds its solace in expressing and confessing its grief and its guilt unto the Lord. Now, why is there such shame in Peter? And surely we have to be careful in the sense that we do not mean that this is a one-to-one for our own, but the essence of it can be seen quite clearly. It is, of course, evident because of his denial of Christ, such explicit ways. We've already seen that in looking at the text a bit directly. So Peter says of him, I know him not, I am not of him, and man, I know not what thou sayest. It is entirely un. Uh, impossible that what you're saying is true. And so what he's doing is he's distancing himself from Christ and he's denying Christ as his. He's even denying to be a part of his band, a part of his group. What's the point? Well, brethren, think of what our sins do. Explicitly, of course, when they're in such a nature as Peter's was, it's more obvious. But even when it is that secretly we are entertaining thoughts of sin and pursuing them. Fundamentally, what's going on is our soul is being postured at a distance from Christ. And we're entertaining the thought, does Christ have the right to command me? Does Christ have the right to oversee me? What if, as Peter perhaps would have been open to thinking, what if I admit I'm with Him? Am I going to be thrown in with Him in His uh, trial, in His Uh, uh, sorrows that he's going to be experiencing. And so all of these things come in waves as they often do undiscerned. But Peter denies Christ three times. And more shame is because 
such little circumstances directly to him. No one's pulling a sword on him. No one's threatening him with some abuse. They're just saying, you're with him, right? You're part of him, right? You're a member of his, aren't you? And he says, no, I'm not. But even what is more cultivating of this humiliation in Peter is that this denial is against knowledge and profession. This is what makes the shame of the believer more deep than that of the unbeliever. I have professed Christ. Christ is my Savior. I have trusted in Him. I have renounced the world. I have renounced its benefits. I have renounced its associations. And my sin is, as it were, a testimony that I'm going back to some extent upon that profession. All of this binds itself together and brings about these bitter tears. Brethren, this is not all. The text actually highlights something for us. Secondly, tears of remembrance. Notice, it says, verse 60, while he yet spake the cock crew, the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. And through that orchestration of the Lord's work, it says, Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And it's not leaving to our imagination what in particular Peter remembered. It tells us how he, that is the Lord, had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. Any believer who has grown in experience will acknowledge that what often is a source of great grief when sin is pronounced in their consciousness is that it is sin against knowledge. I have sinned against light. Now this doesn't mean that any sin is more acceptable with God or less repulsive as it were uh, in and of itself, but it means that there is a degree of heinousness when not only we understand the truth, but with the understanding we've professed the truth. This is why it is appropriate for us to weep because there has been a distancing of that which is so special to us, so precious to us, that we have embraced the truth. Well, notice Christ gave this word of warning. It's recorded for us in verse 34 of this chapter when Christ said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou thrice shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And surely Peter was shocked by that expression. And perhaps Peter, we don't know, but perhaps Peter took it, as we would say, as a bit of an offense. Who do you think I am that I would ever think to deny that I even know you? And yet, notice what plays out in the very denial. These are the very words recorded for us. He says, woman, verse 57, I know him not. You are also with them. Man, I am not. Of a truth, this fellow also was with him. Man, I know not what thou sayest. I have no association with this man. You will thrice deny that you know me. What a testimony this is. Have you ever come to one of God's warnings and you said, well, so-and-so needs to hear that but that was something I struggled with years back. I don't really need to tune in to that because by God's grace, 
I've come to a position where I am now able to stand, able to walk, and so on. It's interesting, not many moments later, Christ would come with another word to Peter when He says, Can you not watch with Me? Watch and pray that ye enter not into temptation. Christ is coming after having given that warning to give an exhortation and say, Stir up yourself to watch and pray that you would not enter into this temptation. But Peter neglects and overcome with sorrow removes it, removes himself from it. And so Peter is remembering this. It's playing as a scene in his mind. I remember just hours before, I was with Christ and He said, this day you'll deny Me three times. He denied, or He remembered rather, the word of warning. But this word also now, because He's remembering it, comes with an edge of reproof. So think of this for a moment. Before the action, Christ is saying this is going to happen. Peter says, no, I'll never deny. It's not going to happen. And now it's happened. The very moment has come and it's over. And now the word is remembered. And what happens? It's exposing Peter. What's it exposing in Peter? Well, this is where we find a connection to Peter. We may never, by God's grace, use such words as Peter did. But we know what it is, in essence, to walk in the steps of Peter every time we rely upon ourselves and express confidence in ourselves. Notice the language again of Peter right before Christ's testimony. It testifies with with Peter. He's saying that I will never deny you. Well, notice here that Christ has said that in verse 34, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before that thou shalt deny thrice thrice deny me, that thou knowest me. There's an emphasis upon you, Peter. What has Peter just said? He said, listen, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. This is what I'm ready to do. And all of this is bringing out a self-confidence. And Peter's remembering that now. And he's seeing this great contrast. Oh, the pride and self-confidence to think Whatever love was motivating it, whatever ignorance was joined with it, whatever conceit was there motivating as well, that I thought I would never do this. Now three times out of my own mouth, I've denied Christ. And the Word hits Him. Boom. And there is a word of reproof that brings forth these tears that are wept bitterly as Peter is repenting. Brethren, Here's an important thought for us. If we put Peter's tears in context as we hope to do upcoming, what we see them to be is not just tears of regret, but tears of repentance. Here's something that we need to realize. It's the Word of Christ that is instrumental in bringing about Peter's repentance. You see that? He remembers the Word of the Lord. And the Lord orders His look to bring it with power upon Him. It's as if the Lord comes as the prophet Nathan came to David and says, David, thou art the man. Isn't it expressive to us? An eye can say as much as a tongue. A look, a glance of the eye communicates tremendously. And Christ is looking at Peter. And Peter sees it. He remembers His Word. And now He's cut. 
But notice the instrument fundamentally is the word which Christ spoke. Now think for a moment how it is that when sinners become convinced of sin, left to themselves, they often wish to begin distancing themselves from the Lord's word. Which, if left to themselves, will surely conclude with their demise. Because what is needed in the moment of their being made aware of sin is the Lord's Word to come with power. Now think for a moment how it is that each of us, we find ourselves at various seasons neglecting God's Word. And so days have passed, perhaps for some, weeks have passed. And you know what? We've never opened the Word of God. We've hardly listened to God's Word. Our families are absent from family worship and other such things. And if we start to think about it, we realize as we uncover things, well, I've got a lot of excuses. I'm busy here. I've got that there. But that falls through because quite frankly, no one here is that special. Everyone's life is busy. Everyone's life has things to do. What's different is we have drifted from the Word of God. And so, brethren, what we have need of is being brought back to the Word of God, which is the strong instrument God uses to bring forth the flow of tears of repentance. We must give ourselves to the Word of God. It is that which the Lord uses. And though we can never make the Word of God bring forth such fruit, by exposing ourselves to the Word of God, we give ourselves to the instrument that if ever we should lead lives of repentance, it would be by this Word. But lastly, notice, these tears that Peter weeps bitterly are tears of love. You say, well, I don't see the word love in here. That's true, you don't. But you can see the look of love, and you can see the response of love. So notice that it says the Lord turned and looked. All of that is a deliberate work of Christ. It's astonishing. All that He's going through, the mockery, the beatings that already have begun, He's experiencing that, and He has the wherewithal as the incarnate Son of God to turn, notice the language, and look upon Peter. Now brethren, here's the point. The tears of love are brought forth first by the love of God. This is the fundamental point. Peter remembers God's Word because Christ turns to look at him. And Christ has gone before in history to provide for his remembrance of these things. So Christ is this masterful worker of all things. He's giving Peter the very Word that would be remembered. And now at the moment of its fulfillment, he turns and looks at Peter as if to say, Peter, this is that moment I've talked to you about. Do you remember, brethren, that Christ has also told him in verse 32, I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. And when thou art converted, strengthen thy brethren. Converted here is not in the supernatural change of one dead in sin to one alive in righteousness, but one who turns and repents. Turns is the notion of the word. When you are repented, go and strengthen thy brethren. So notice this for a moment. Christ has already gone before to pave the way of Peter's repentance. He's given him sufficient grounding, sufficient teaching, warnings, exhortations, etc. And he's also given him encouragement. I have prayed for you that your faith would fail not. So notice this for a moment. As egregious as this sin is, 
It's not an absolute failure of faith. Why? Well, fundamentally because of Christ. I've prayed for you that your faith fail not. You see for a moment, all of this is coming as an acute point upon Peter's consciousness. The Lord who spoke to him. And how could it not be but that Christ is looking at Simon when He says this. Verse 31, the Lord said, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat, but I have prayed for thee. He's speaking to Simon Peter. He has his eyes upon Simon Peter. He's exhorting Simon Peter. And now, bloodied as he is already, he turns all else that's before him. He ruling the nations. He bearing, as it were, up for the cross that is coming. He turns to look at Simon with a look, yes, of severity, but of severe love, which breaks Simon's heart and evokes within Him the humiliation, the remembrance, and love the weak that would then issue forth in these tears that He weeps bitterly. What a look! And at what a time! And yet, if you're a believer, you've had that look. The same look from heaven. Where you've gone about in your stupid inexcusable way. And the Lord has given you warning after warning. He's surrounded you with circumstances to help guide you. And yet you went forth headstrong into that sin. And there you find yourself. And the Lord looks from heaven. And with that look, brings to your mind the remembrance of His warnings, the remembrance of His mediation, the remembrance of His promises, And there you are empty of all self-conceit and pride and left, as it were, fully and entirely reliant only upon Him who here at Peter's time was to make the ransom for his sins. Now, Notice these tears must be expressive of love. So not only are they evoked by love, the Lord's love, They are expressive of love. Peter's love. And someone says, how in the world is that the case? Because everything around it is demonstrating that though weak and shadowy and frail, there is love. So notice in the couple of chapters, Luke 24, after Christ is crucified, we come to the resurrection. And it's interesting, this emphasis upon Peter that comes up in most of the Gospels. And so you'll notice that in verse 10, it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary the mother of James and other women that were with them which told these things unto the apostles and their words seemed to them as idle tales and they believed them not. Then arose who? Peter. And ran unto the sepulcher and stooping down he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves departed wondering in himself at that which was come to pass. And so it's Peter who outruns John. It's Peter who is the first to the tomb after the report is given. It's Peter who's earnestly seeking, what does this mean? What is this about? It's Peter who's with the apostles. It's not Peter like Judas, who has gone out and killed himself in his shame and regret, which was a worldly sword. It's Peter who godly sorrow 
has repented and returned and is now numbered with the very people He said, I don't even know them. I've never been associated with them. Where is Peter now? He's with the people. Brethren, this is the testimony of Christ fulfilling His prayer. I have prayed that thy faith fail not. And Peter's faith hasn't failed. Oh, the wounds it's taken. It's like those armaments that you see in various wars and they're battered and broken and dense on every side. And yet there are survivors on the inside. It's been brutally beaten. So had Peter's faith. But Christ had sustained it. And little though it was, Peter was numbering himself with the disciples. And the earnestness with which he runs to the tomb to make sense of this report is evident in every account. And then what is it that happens? Well, notice as well that you have in this very record Peter's continued development as it's a, the Lord is risen, verse 34, and hath appeared to Simon. And so the Lord is appearing Himself to Simon and privileging Simon Peter. You have it as well in John's Gospel, that which is most explicit. John chapter 20, and there at verse 3, Peter therefore went forth and that other disciple and came to the sepulcher. They ran both together and the other disciple did outrun Peter and came first to the sepulcher. He stooping down looked and saw the linen clothes. But what happens now? Simon Peter follows and he goes into the sepulcher and sees. He's earnest in making sure he wants to know all that's taking place. But brethren, notice what's written in John chapter 21 and there at verse 7. Here as they're fishing, it says, Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved saith unto Peter, It is the Lord. And what does Simon Peter do? He hears it, and it says that he put on his fisher's coat, and he did cast himself into the sea. And the other disciples came in a little ship. Peter's swimming to Christ. He's not waiting on others. He wants Christ. What's the point? These tears that you see weeping bitterly by Peter are expressive, yes, of the shame and humiliation. Yes, of the remembrance of all the tender care and compassion of the Lord. And yet, they are expressive of this sincere, deep-rooted love that Peter yet has immaturely expressed, more fully to express in years to come. But all of which are testifying as Peter says to the Lord, Yea, Lord, Thou knowest that I love Thee. Lord, Thou knowest all things. Thou knowest that I love Thee. He's testifying, Lord, yes. What's the point? If you love Christ and you become conscious of your sins, you'll learn what it is to weep. Because you're conscious of His love to you. It is the love of Christ that evokes our love to Him. And when we're conscious that I have had the wicked, foolish audacity to sin against so great a Savior who has done nothing but good to me, who has orchestrated the whole of the universe for my good, warning me, teaching me, providing for me, praying for me that when I sin, yet I would not be given over. All of this hits Peter as a bomb exploding. And he goes away by himself and weeps expressing this love in its weak form, yes, in its shadowy form, yes, but its sincere form, most certainly. 
The tears of the penitent believing upon Christ are the sweetest tears ever shed. Brethren, all of this we close by seeing what a powerful exhortation it is that should we sin, how necessary it is that we be certain of Christ and His love to us. This is not something we can manufacture, we acknowledge. But it is something we can prepare for. And so it's not that we're preparing for our sins. We don't mean that. But we're preparing by knowing Christ and His love to us, His Word to us, for our restoration. It's that we would be strengthened by Him. How do we go about doing that? Well, we take advantage of the means He gives. We can learn from what happened to Peter in some sense passively to him and turn it into an activity for us. How is it that I can be sure of the Lord's look to come with me to me with love? Well, with Peter, we can be brought to profess faith. I trust in Him. I see Him to be the Son of God. He's the one who will die for us, who has died for us, who is risen, all of these things. I've hidden His Word in my heart that I might not sin against Him. But I've also hidden His promises in my heart that when, as John will say, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. There's much here that we can glean from Peter's experience and turn it into practice that our souls would be strengthened in those seasons when we are most grieved by our sins. But fundamentally, it comes down to knowing Christ. Brethren, this is the preeminent need for you and for me. It's not an exhortation for us to shed tears. That's not the point. It's an exhortation for us to know Christ. Christ in our worst times, is the best of blessings. And Christ in our best times remains the best of blessings. But it also confirms how appropriate humiliation before God is by Christians because of their sins. But it puts this correction on it. It's not that we're paying anything off. It's not that we're just doing what's right. It's not that we say, I've sinned, oh no, I need to go and do this. Peter doesn't sit down and say, what am I supposed to do now? Christ has looked on me. He instinctively goes out and weeps. Why? Because there's love. Because Christ has ordered His love to Peter, and Peter has, by God's grace, love to him. When it is that we're confronted by our sins, it's right for us to make ourselves small before the Lord. But this is not to the, as it were, brandishing of whips and cat nine tails to start beating ourselves. It is rather tears that come forth of love. Some of you will know this by experience, humanly speaking. Someone you've loved tremendously, a spouse, a parent, a child, you've done something wrong against them. And you don't go and say, well, I'm so glad we have a good relationship and we're all fine and everything's great and so it's not a big deal. You come with humility. And you say to them, I, have to, I don't even know what I was thinking. What I've done is inexcusable. If someone came to you and did something desperately wicked against you, you would count it a a great problem for them to come happily and joyfully and say, you know, we have a great relationship, not a big deal. Say, this is, it's not just a problem like to my dishonor. There's a problem in you that you shouldn't be brought low. Brethren, the lowliness before the Lord is because of love. Love brings lowliness when we see our sins. 
Because God is great. God is good. God is glorious. And we are mindful that in spite of all that He's done for us, we've sinned against Him. And yet, the love breeds eagerness to seek the Lord. So soon as Peter hears of the empty tomb, what does he do? He runs. And though he can't keep up with John, he's the first one to go into the tomb. So soon as John said, it's the Lord, Peter's diving into the water to get to Christ. Where there's love, there's lowliness that leads to Christ. That's what the world can't understand. That's what the world can't counsel. Because the world says lowliness and shame leads to isolation. That's because the only shame the world knows is sinful shame, like Adam and Eve hiding themselves from the Lord. But the gracious and godly sorrow which God gives to His people with the gift and grace and evangelical grace of repentance is one that brings them low and brings them to Christ. Why? Because they're seeing it is Christ only who is my Savior. It is Christ only who can secure this. Who knows what Peter understood all of what he was witnessing of Christ. Christ passing by. He turns and looks upon Peter. But this is what we know. Peter was being paid for by Christ. Peter's sins were being transferred to Christ. And Christ out of love was bearing up that guilt and bearing up the wrath of God. And you are in a better place than Peter was right now in this passage because you know those things. And so when the world says, and even some Christians say, well, you know, we have grace, so we ought always to be you know, happy, cheery, and so on. We say, do you not read the Bible? The Bible is filled with godly, gracious, believing men and women who when they're convinced of their sin are face planted on the floor, weeping bitterly. Children, the idea is they're sobbing. If you had been by Peter, you would have heard a grown man weeping, like the world says, as a little girl. Sobbing, holding back nothing, letting all of it go forth. Why? Well, here's what the world would say. Because he's immature. Here's what some Christians would say. He didn't understand grace. But here's what the Bible says. It's because he loved the Lord. He knew the Lord's love to him. And he's saying, how could I do this great wickedness against my Savior, who at the very moment that I was denying Him, was not denying me. Who at the very moment I was sinning against Him, was doing all that was required for my salvation. Brethren, when these things grip us, it will teach us what it is to come lowly before the Lord, and yet seeking the Lord and His delightful grace. Cast down, Christian, if you have gathered yourself here this, this morning. Here is the look that you must look to. Christ is enthroned in heaven. He is above. You can't have the same local experience of Peter at present. But here's what we know of Christ. He's engraven our names upon His palms. He as the great and high priest has our names engraved upon His breastplate. He's the one who is making intercession for the saints. He's the one who's remembering us in all of our sins. If we sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And here's the thing, as mediator, He is a middle man. 
He's the one between God and man. And so what Christ is doing at one and the same time is He's looking to the Father, saying, look what I've done for them. But He's also looking to us who have sinned and saying, look what I've done for you. And brethren, when that meets us in the moment of our sin, how can it not? How can it not evoke lowly and yet fervent love before so great a Savior? Peter said, I will not, now has. Christ who says, I will stand victorious, now does. Where does Peter turn to now? He turns to the Lord. And so it is for us. Christ looked at Peter at the height of his sin. At the most egregious moment of his sin. And his look was one of love still. We know Antinomians will say, well, you know, that's just opening the door. Or legalists will say that opens the door for all sorts of careless licentiousness. And we say, no, it is the only way of true evangelical obedience. It's the only way of true lasting love to Christ to realize that Christ is our Savior. Christ is the only one who can secure for us these things. While Christ was upon Peter's redemption, He gave Himself to Peter's repentance. Such is the cause of these bitter tears which in the end are evidence of the sweetness of gracious love. Would you stand with me for prayer?